Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Jiggle. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block, clinging the murder scene. You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell. My only hell was since when y'all niggas know me to fail. Yes, we're devoting our entire show today to Jay Z and Annie. Um, although that would be fine. I wouldn't mind doing that. This is the nose. Welcome to the nose. And it's, uh, we were going to talk about this. I feel like we probably won't get to it, but from a certain point of view, it's somewhere between 2002 and 2004 because uh, Ben Affleck and J-Lo are back together, sort of, maybe, in Montana or someplace. And the Cicadas are doing Cicada things, and John Mayer has a new album about to drop, and uh, and I forget, and something about jeans, too. I don't know. Uh, one of our panelists will have to explain the jeans thing. I, I don't understand jeans, and that's just the reality. Uh, our guest today, our panelists, are Mercy Quay. She's the one who would understand jeans. A founder, maybe, a founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst, Connecticut Media Group. Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent, a producer at WNHH Radio, a musician, a novelist. He can fix your car. He can do just anything, really. Uh, and uh, they are both uh, with us today. We're going to begin with uh, the induction or the, the nominations, which are the same as the induction uh, for the 2021 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class. Uh, and I think and so these are I don't know, actually, maybe even before the panelists start, we should let John Mulaney who's also in the news, but we're probably not going to talk about him unless Mercy wants to. Uh, he, let's hear John Mulaney talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If I could describe it, uh, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, think of it like a wedding if every speech was given by the bride's ex-boyfriend. <laughs> like, every band comes in with uh, some old grievance, and all their speeches are just filled with bile from, like, 30 years before about, like, equipment vans or something. And like the Golden Globes, the Oscars, the Oscars had a big weird thing happen last year. That's one glitch. That's on a night where each winner does not know until the moment the envelope opens that they've won. Then they have to go give a speech in front of 10 million people. That should have millions of glitches. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction bands know for months that they're going to be inducted (laughs) and that they have to give a speech. They blow it every year. They all get up there. They don't know how to stand. They've been standing on stage for 20 years, and they're just, like, side to the podium, like, yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, look, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame, which we think is BS, they always undercut the night right away. And we're like, we don't want this. This was for you. Uh, indeed. So, and he actually begins, that's Seth Meyers laughing in the background. He's a very good friend. And um, Mulaney begins by saying, asking the audience if they watch the HBO 
induction ceremonies every year, and of course nobody does. So um, the induction, the, the performers inducted this year are the Foo Fighters, Jay-Z. That's really why we were playing him at the beginning. Foo Fighters, Jay-Z. Uh, it's not the Foo Fighters. I think it's just Foo Fighters. Jay-Z, the Go-Go's, Carol King, Todd Rundgren, Tina Turner. Um, and there's a in Ahmet Ertegen Award to a non-performing music industry professional. Clarence Avant uh, gets that. We can explain later if we need to who he is or was. Uh, LL Cool J, Billy Preston, and Randy Rhodes get something called a Musical Excellence Award, which somehow is not the same as being inducted, I guess. Uh, and then there's an Early Influence Award, which goes to Kraftwerk, Gil Scott-Heron, and Charlie Patton. So I guess, Brian, as the musician among us, you should get us started here. I mean, even just sort of reading off all that stuff, you can kind of sense the stress and tension around the very concept of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to the thing of, like, Rock and Roll starting off as a, as a you know, essentially like a marketing label to make it okay back in the 50s for white audiences to listen to black music and for white musicians to, um, you know, uh, co-opt at best and steal at worst black music. <laughs> and because that's kind of baked into the genre, like right from the start, you can, you can hear the hall of fame, just like really like you can hear the gears grinding every time they, they need to talk about like what is and what is not rock and roll because it's, it's freighted with this like, amazing cultural baggage that has always been there and the people always uh i remember like as a musician like i feel like we we always talked about it but we felt like if anybody if we brought up all the race stuff people would just yell at us um so we just talked about it in the car to each other and things like that but now that that conversation is super out in the open like those those gears are grinding really loud these days <laughs> and it's and it's you know it's it's hard to uh uh it's hard to figure out exactly what to do with it, you know, aside from sort of, I, I, I feel ultimately bad for the people who have to kind of make these announcements because <laughs> it's, it's opening up this huge can of worms now. Yeah, well, Lou, I think we should look into that can of worms. But before we do this, I have a real-time correction uh, from Jonathan McPants. It turns out there are people who are nominated who don't get inducted, and they include Iron Maiden this year, uh, Chaka Khan, Rage Against the Machine, Mary J. Blige, Kate Bush, Devo, Fela Kuti, the New York Dolls, and Dionne Warwick. All of them were nominated but are not going to be inducted. I think the process by which this is determined is somewhat mysterious uh, to the world. And all of those acts together are putting out an album. Oh, and then everybody will sing on every single track. Uh, and that'll be really good, I think. I would buy that album. Uh, so I don't know. I, I uh, As we were sort of emailing around and trying to figure out what the topics were going to be today, and we should say Mayor of Easttown is going to be the main topic of the second segment. But uh, Mercy, I could tell this wasn't necessarily your first choice for topics. And maybe it might even be interesting to know why that is. Like, you know, it might be interesting to know why specifically you don't call, care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, as opposed to why everybody else doesn't. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I have never been a fan of superlatives, <laughs> right? And so any award show, I am just not the audience for this because I don't like live events. I'm, I'm not a, a fan of awards. Uh, when when the Grammys come out, I'm like, oh, that's cool. That person won a thing. When uh, the Emmys, sure, great. I'm excited about that. When the Oscars, I might go back and watch the movies because someone said that these were good. But I, but I, I I'm <laughs> Tommy Loren made this joke, and I don't like to quote any joke that Tommy Loren ever makes. But you know, I'm a millennial, so I don't quite like labels. 
Um, and so because of that, when when someone is inducted or gets an award for something, it's like, all right, I, I, I get it. I get that someone says you're important, but I, I sort of need to assess it myself and and uh, make make my own judgment on that. The Rock and Hall, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, more than the rest, feels to me like a practice of nostalgia and a nostalgia that I don't actually have um, a way to participate in. I don't have an entry point up until recently, right? So a thing that viewers and listeners should know is that you only become eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if you don't know this after 25 years of the release of the piece of work, right? And so I'm in my 30s. So I don't have I don't have an entry point into the music that is being inducted every year, except now Jay-Z. Right. And so it'll start getting, I, I guess, more and more interesting to me as I age. But it is inherently a practice of nostalgia. Yeah. Although I, let me just push back against that just in two ways. One of them is I think that the, I look, I don't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the, for different reasons. Um, the um, this is different from the Oscars and the Emmys and all that kind of stuff because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, first of all, an actual place. Uh, It's in Cleveland. It looks like a pyramid. Uh, You can go there. The gift shop is expensive, I've read. Uh, You know, it's a place you can go, and it's an attempt to, in fact, do what I think Brian thinks it doesn't do very well, which is somehow or other create a history uh, of the form uh, and and in the way that museums do. Uh, There's also, like, another museum in Seattle. I I forget what that's. I've been to that one, but it's... Uh, you know, but the, the, it's so it's an attempt to curate and understand, you know, what this form actually is and how far back it goes and how far far forward it goes. So and and w- which pieces of it are the most durable? And I think that's why you have the kind of 25 year rule. Um, and I guess the other thing that I would say is, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm. I'm really, really deeply, deeply familiar with the work of, you know, Jerome Kern and Richard Rodgers and, and, and Irving Berlin and George Gershwin and Cole Porter, although none of them are anywhere near my lifetime. Uh, Rodgers that's probably. Fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. And I think the only, the, it, 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 it for me, that separation means that I don't have that sort of, um, you know, heartfelt nostalgia about the music being inducted, right? I can appreciate it, Tina Turner, right? I can appreciate uh, Aretha Franklin, um, you know, growing up listening to even Gladys Knight uh, and, and my mom and dad dancing in the kitchen sort there of thing. There you go. Right? <laughs> I, but I'm not, it, there isn't a space for me to say, you know, I feel like this person has been wronged by not being inducted. Right. And I mean, that's, snubs are sort of part of the fun and uh, and the part of the grievance uh, of any kind of thing like this, you know, is like getting mad about stuff like that. But I, I do feel, Brian, that one thing that gets asked more and more, and I think, you know, exactly what Mercy's talking about, the arrival of hip hop artists into the mix have, has triggered a kind of ugly conversation uh, featuring, a surprise, surprise, Gene Simmons being part of an ugly conversation. Who would ever have guessed? Uh, but I mean, you know, with not, not only him, but, you know, I was pointing you guys towards an, uh, one article about this in, I think, Entertainment Weekly, where the comments were racially drawn in a way that, you know, that I was, I don't know, I was surprised at how comfortable people were at dismissing 
stuff that was not the work of white artists with guitars, uh, dismissing that from the rock and roll canon. I don't know, Brian, I don't know. I think you were less surprised somehow. I'm definitely less surprised. Um, like it, it for, I guess like the first thing to say is that like, though I'm certainly of an age that I could be a rock musician, I've never been one. <laughs> so <laughs> it feels like an sort of like separate group of people than the, than the people that I usually hang out with. Um, I think that the, I think that like the rock scene has an interesting thing going on, which is like people are having a lot of trouble figuring out how to deal with the fact that they're no longer sort of like the cultural driving force in popular music and haven't been for decades at this point. Um, and there are like the people, there are people who accept it, you know, who say like, it's, it's a historical music, just like jazz or the blues or, you know, so it, it has relevance to the extent that people still like the sound of it, which a lot of people do. Um, you know, like the, like distorted electric guitars show up everywhere and people tend to like them. (laughs) And that's, that's, you could argue that that's kind of like rock's contribution to the sound of American music. Um, And then there are the people who are, you know, who are just having trouble with the idea that like, you know, I can make a really good rock album and it is, it is not going to sell 20 million copies. (laughs) You know, like there aren't 20 million people who want a new rock record. You know, we have enough of them, I guess at this point. Um, and that's sort of like, I think that that's the place where it gets ugly, you know, in that like, it's, it's hard for them to give up the power that they had and, um, looking out on that, it, it maps all too comfortably onto sort of like racial and (laughs) generational lines, um, that, that, you know, that, that freight it with that, that people can sort of talk about that's not rock music. And they, they really are talking in musical terms, but it has this cultural baggage attached to it that if you are sensitive to that, um, is, you know, uncomfortably obvious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, reading those comments, Mercy, I was uncomfortable also just because, you know, whatever we're going to decide rock and roll is, it it certainly you know came from indisputably black music um, and and is black music and it's Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Little Richard and and then a whole bunch of people went before them and you know I mean people talk about Elvis as having like appropriated a lot of black music which he absolutely did and then forgetting. Elvis's incredible reverence for the, those black musicians. I mean, Elvis wanted everybody to know who Arthur Crudup was, uh, I mean, and, and people didn't. Well, I mean, that's the point, though, because I feel like the biographies of individual musicians complicate that general narrative. I think that like musicians come from all kinds of places about that, right? Like, there's from reverence to theft, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it makes it makes that argument really fun to get into because I think that many. The truth is that like most musicians don't play the music that that is quote unquote theirs. Mm-hmm. And you get to um you get to figure out how you feel about that. But I think that like many musicians think of themselves as emissaries, you know, that you go, you know, someone goes, I really like the sound that you made. You go, you know what you should really listen to is <laughs> <laughs> Well you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I totally do that. Yeah. And most people I know do that. You know, right. it's like you go, look, I just I just listen to this other person. Right. Who I like. Well, I mean, in the presence of me and Mercy, it turns out you said that rather than listen to Paul Simon, you would prefer to listen to all the world musicians he was biting on, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, and so would he. <laughs> 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 well, you know, Mercy, well, I, I, I go ahead. Yeah. 
being, I think the nature of being a musician is almost, um, it, it, it requires and obligates you to be more open than the, you know, dominant culture, the, the decision, yeah. the gatekeepers of culture would otherwise have you be, right? And so we could, um, as much as we understand uh, musicians being shepherds or rather stewards of, you know, uh, uh, music that they have, that have, you know, that has influenced their sound, it doesn't quite matter if the gatekeepers of culture are sort of like, no, no, we're attributing this to you. And that's really what the um, the tragedy of uh, rock and roll is. It doesn't matter how much uh, Elvis advocated for Black music um, and credited his sound to Black music. If the dominant culture didn't, uh, doesn't accept that as the common narrative, as the, as the main narrative, it doesn't matter. It, it sort of gets adopted into our history as a different thing. I agree with you. One thousand percent. Yeah. No, I think there's a real, but I sort of feel like the. Well, I think I'm also agreeing with Brian that I don't think the musicians are the problem. I think the fans are the problem. Uh, and I think I think we as a why, society. Why, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's why you get those musicians who at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame talk about how much they don't like it, right? It's <laughs> like they're the first people to go like, nah. <laughs> this is all making uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, yes, we should say that, by the way, to confirm um, John Mulaney's premise, uh, and I do love when he says that, how about how they undercut the entire evening, and, oh, yeah. and, 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 and Mulaney goes, no, you don't understand. We don't want this. We're doing this for you. Um, and um, I, I sort of love that sentiment, but I, I was just reading beforehand, out loud, before we went on the air here, uh, Todd Rundgren uh, saying that he doesn't want to go in the Hall of Fame. He's never wanted to go in the Hall of Fame. Everybody knows he doesn't like being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This comes up every year. I don't know how it comes up every year, but I'm in a big Todd Rundgren fan, but he acts as though they're trying to wear him down. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, all right, I'll be in your dumb Hall of Fame. Which is, I don't think, an attitude that anybody from any other Hall of Fame has. But, you know, I mean, Mercy, I think that's also a little bit of the, to the extent that rock and roll has any discernible unifying spirit, it is, to a certain degree, the rejection of norms, the rejection of establishment, and maybe exactly what you said, that you don't like honors and labels and codifications, everything that would be represented by the very concept of a Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, and in that, I think we should maybe stop here, <laughs> right? Like, I think that we should stop inducting people. I, like, we get it. It's like the game. It, it, I don't know if you all remember uh, the game. This might be a generational thing. The, the point of the game in the early 90s was to not think about the game. And if you think about the game, you've lost the game. Right. Like I, there's a bit of if everyone hates this <laughs> and no one quite know there's controversy each year. I, I think as a relic in time, maybe even a museum, other museums aren't curated in this way. Right. And so if we if we had the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame curated in the same way that other museums are, maybe let the Smithsonian take it over and curate it differently. Yeah. I think that there would be a different. Um, reception to it all altogether by both fans and musicians. Maybe other yeah. museums should be curated that way. Like Jackson Pollock is up this year to be in the Museum of Modern Art. Let's see if he gets in. Uh, you know, Brian, what were you going to say? I was going to say even the 25-year mark is probably a, about a good place to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you think of it as – like if you think of like the, the, the mid-'90s as kind of like Rock's last sort of moment when it was in the – you know, dead center in the culture. It's like 
then okay, that's it's been about twenty five years. That's it. <laughs> you know, we can close the door at that point. And, and is Jack Black inducted into the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for School of Rock? Because I just feel like that was a snub as well. <laughs> Has it been twenty five years? Um, Jack Black, he's got High Fidelity, School of Rock. He's got a lot of you know ways he could get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, but. I just the last thing I'd like to just bring up about this is, and this is in a lot of our communications before we did the show today. We were, we were talking about generational issues, and to me, that's the other thing that's here. It's one of the things that makes the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of difficult is that unless you're really, really small C Catholic in your tastes, which I think Brian in particular probably is, the likelihood that Tina Turner and the and Foo Fighters are going to have equal resonance with you or that, you know, that that Iron Maiden and Chaka Khan or but I mean, even but when it gets even more generationally spread, um, you know, you really are talking about a kind of music that maybe more than almost anything you know, kind of rotates its seasons out, you know, every every 10 years or so or every 15 years or so. I mean, I guess here's what I'm trying to express. Like, I grew up in a generation where rock and roll was a fairly new thing and our parents hated it and they didn't think the Beatles were any good and they thought the Rolling Stones were, you know, vicious, weird, long-haired animals, you know, and they just, like, didn't get it and we were so upset with them. And I, I now see people from my generation, people who lived through that era going on social media going, Who's Cardi B? Should I care about Cardi B? Is there any point in how, who is she even? How, why should I care about Cardi? Is that even music? You know, and and I really feel as though the there are lots of ways we can unite as generations. Although I think the whole concept of generations is essentially a pretty divisive idea. But boy, music—it's like we're really not good at this. We're really not good at seeing in more than ten or twelve year stretches, and then we just kind of slam the door. Um, and I think all of all generations do it too. I, I mean, boomers are pretty bad considering how much they complained about it at the time about the previous <laughs> generation. But I don't know, Brian. What, what, give me a reaction here. I just want to hear from I both of you on this. No, I think that's like super true. There's my like my experience as a as a um my experience as a musician is that like there it, it is pretty outstanding the way that I feel like most people like develop their musical taste pretty early in life, and then they sort of decide like that's it. That's my musical taste. And there are a lot of people who then just listen to the same, maybe like 200 albums over and over and over again. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a lot. That's a okay, lot. 20. How about 20? Is 20. <laughs> but they listen to the same things like over and over and over again. Like that's enough music for them. And I actually, I kind of get it. Like I, I get that like, you know, most people also don't have the kind of like, obsession that certainly not the kind of obsession that musicians have and like because all, all that takes time and energy and it's like well you could do that or you could like watch netflix or you could do that or you could make dinner you know like those like <laughs> i get the time and energy are limited um that said i also think that there's a that there are these weird like niche moments where suddenly like something that is not relevant to people's everyday lives at all strikes them as like weird interesting and refreshing like the like i play i play all this uh jazz from the 20s and 30s that was you know developed in paris and it's super evocative and people who have no idea what it is like they they respond to it because to them it's new and you know it, it hits them all over again and i it, it'd be cool to imagine that that rock may hit that um 
that point at some point if we sort of shut up about it for maybe 20 years <laughs> suddenly like somebody will listen to like a Jimi hendrix album and go like oh my god what is that right <laughs> <You know? laughs> i feel like that could happen right now but yeah uh, mercy give me your take on this i mean i think you know i'm just gonna echo um brian uh, for a couple beats here and it, this isn't going to sound new i think the mark of <laughs> the mark of aging in your generation is to completely uh, re refute and rebuke anything coming in, you know, generations after you. I, I'm doing it right now. I find myself doing it right, almost in ways that surprise me. Right, even though I, I I've said out loud so that my conscience can hear my voice, um, that you will remain open and you will do what the kids do. Um, oh. But there are times where I'm just like, I don't know these people and I don't understand this music. <laughs> Teach right. me. Tell me what, like, tell me what the, what the injury here is. I, um, with hip hop in like the, like starting like maybe in the mid nineties for about 10 years, I feel like I was just playing catch up. It was, yeah. it was a lot of work. It was super fun, but it was like. Sure. It was a lot of work and it was a lot of me like talking to people who knew a lot more than I did about it and just going like, give me 20 albums I should be listening to. Absolutely. Like, well, there's, eventually there's you have you have kids. And, and I mean, I went to a lot of hip hop shows when my son was into it. Uh, he and I would go and because I was working next door to at that time, Connecticut's preeminent hip hop station. We usually had like backstage, backstage passes. So and then we could get thrown out of backstage when like people would take guns out, which actually would happen from time to time. Like like the crews from Lil, from Lil Kim and Jay Z weren't getting along or something. But I mean, I, I so I but I I also think ultimately, and you guys can disagree with me about this. I think nobody wants us to do that. Like I actually am a person who's made kind of an effort to stay up with music, you know. And I'm 66 years old, and I can tell you. That um, if I'm at a big party and Uptown Funk comes on, uh, the DJ, if the DJs just play Uptown Funk and Carolyn Payne, fellow panelist and much younger person, is at the party, she will leave rather than watch me do my sad dad dancing. Uh, <laughs> like I'm really excited that Uptown Funk is on. And when my son was just like maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12, I remember walking past his bedroom and he was listening, I think, to Corn, Corn with a K. And I remember. You know, and I was like really into a lot of the music that he was sort of, you know, would have been appropriate for him. And I stuck my head in his room and I said, I'm sorry you have to listen to such crappy music just to rebel against me, which and I didn't say crappy either. And, and it was like completely the wrong thing to say. It made the problem worse, you know. But but the last thing he wanted was a dad who knew who Mob Deep was, you know. <laughs> That's kind of not the point. So I feel like nobody wants us to, to, to embrace this stuff anyway. I mean, so no one wants us to embrace this stuff. I mean, the present generation is sort of like, this isn't for you. This is, it's our time. You've aged out of music hearing ears, right? Um, and, I, you know, I don't think that the, you know, the folks on this call certainly want to be in that bucket, but I find myself there. There was a meme recently that was certainly around the internet. It was like, you can only listen to one of these artists for a six hour road trip. And I didn't know who any of them were, right? And, and they were all hip hop artists. And I was just like, I think that's the baby. I have no idea. Is it called? Is, is, <laughs> I, I don't know who these people are. And I was ashamed. I was ashamed of myself. I'm going to say two words to you. 
Sam Hadleman. Just bring Sam Hadleman <laughs> with you everywhere, and, and you will know what's going on anyway. I mean, or Sam will know what's going on, and he'll tell you, and you'll kind of understand. Anyway, we have to stop there. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, inductees list is out. Get excited, get sad, get bored, and you probably won't remember to watch the ceremony anyway. We are back. This is The Nose. We somehow or other made it through a conversation about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I thought it was a good conversation, actually. Uh, and uh, now we are t- about to talk with Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project, columnist with Hearst Media Group, and Brian Slattery, musician, novelist, arts editor for the New Haven Independent, and a producer at WNHH Radio. We're going to talk about a series that uh, is four episodes deep, four, I think, out of a possible seven. Correct me if I'm wrong on Slack. Um, uh, it's called Mayor of Easttown. It stars Kate Winslet. Uh, she plays uh, a depressed uh, police detective uh, who is a former basketball star uh, and has uh, is kind of broken down from that and broken down from personal disappointment and, and the death of a family member. She's overweight. She's vaping. She's sulking. Uh, and I know this sounds like so much fun. Like, how can you even just, you know, not just rush off and start watching it right away? So here's a little uh, sense of, of a scene that evokes uh, her past, B2. Why'd you move to Easttown anyway? I am guest lecturing at Kettleman College. Creative writing. Oh. So, you talk about writing? That's a thing. Well, that's a thing, huh? It's a thing. Cool. How'd you get that job? I wrote a book once. Was it any good? So, you know, some people think so. They made a TV movie out of it in the 90s, starring Jill Eikenberry. I don't know who that is. It doesn't matter. Why do they call you Lady Hawk? Mm. I made a shot in a in a basketball game. That that basketball game. Twenty five years ago. Okay. Must have been some shot. Most places, no. Around here, yeah. I would just like to protest that on behalf of Jill Eikenberry, from whom I caught a cold one time. We were actually, it's a long story, but uh, we were rehearsing something and she gave me her cold. Um, so um, that's Guy Pierce is the other person talking in that. He plays, as you can probably tell, an author who happens to be kind of marooned uh, with a teaching job in this uh, place somewhere near Philadelphia. Uh, and you're getting a little sense, too, of just how constrained uh, everything feels for Kate Winslet's character, Mare. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even really know where to start. I have some very strong feelings uh, about this uh, series, but um, but I don't know. Mercy, maybe I'll just sort of like uh, take everybody's temperature on this. Uh, is this working for you or not? I am enjoying this. I, I think it does for me uh, the things that I was missing from Sharp Objects in a weird way. Okay. Um, it, I think it's definitely in conversation with Sharp Objects and it feels like if all the same game pieces from sharp objects were placed on the table and someone got upset and flipped the table and all of the pieces settled in different ways, we get mayor of Easttown. Um, and I, I actually like it. It, it. It's cringy. I think Kate Winslet's character is, um, is beautifully portrayed in a way that I haven't. I mean, Kate Winslet is in rare form here. Um, and 
for me, this gives me all the cringe without making it too unsettling to watch, which is what I really didn't like about Sharp Objects. It's a really great comparison, actually. And, and I think another way that it's a comparison is they both rely very heavily on tropes that are familiar to us. I mean, Sharp, sharp Objects, to me, was like they just took the, the Southern Gothic sack and just dumped it all, all out over the biggest table that they could find. Um, and, and I would agree that, that um, to a certain degree, Mayor of Easttown doesn't quite rely so much on that kind of thing. But Brian, what about you? I also really like the show. Um, the I'm a sucker for just about anything that's kind of like let's take a genre but then ground it in a really specific place. I I always find that combination. Those are like my favorite shows. Um, I would describe like I would describe Atlanta that way. <laughs> <laughs> I would describe <laughs> Twin Peaks that way. Um, or you think of like uh, the the book Mystic River. I never saw the movie, but. You know, things like that where it's like it, we're, we're taking a mystery that we all kind of know. We all kind of know how that story operates. But if you put it in this like very this 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 context that feels super specific and well lived and, you know, that, that all of the actors are completely subsumed in it, um, it gives those it gives those like those storylines, you know, like a real juice and energy to them. I mean, I, I feel like that's a that's a thing that works over and over and over again, and it's working here. I okay. I'm going to say something that may reveal either my dwindling mental faculties, which I fully acknowledge, or that I'm just really tired or drinking too much or something. But Mercy, I'm having a lot of trouble with the sheer amount of plot in this. You know, there's a murder. There's kind of two disappearances related or unrelated to to the murder. There's a tremendous amount of kind of substance abuse and dysfunction around that. There are actually two kind of disputed custodies. You know, I mean, there's Mayor's grandson, but there's also uh, the child of of the murdered woman. Uh, And and like I, I could layer like 15 other things on top of it. It just seems like every time I catch my breath, they've added a slight wrinkle, a different subplot, uh, a new area of tension. And and I'm thinking, I think they've only got three episodes to go. You know, that would be enough time to wrap up a murder case. But that's not what this is anymore. I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah, no, I and I and I felt exactly the same while watching it. I, I felt it was manic in that way um, and, and gave me crash vibes. Like are in the last episode, are, is, is everyone going to collide in a way that creates a sort of phony resolve. <laughs> right? You're talking about the movie you're talking about the movie Crash, right? Yeah, the movie Crash. So you have like right. you have like PTSD still from the movie Crash. That's interesting. I do. Yeah. I do. It, I mean, you know, not to continue to play on words, but I still have whiplash. I there were pieces that I was like, okay, I'm hoping this resolves. Um there are over over uh lapping plot lines. There are plot lines that I don't think that they're going to have enough time to resolve. I, uh, there are characters that we haven't had enough time to be uh, to get to know to be in, uh, intimate enough with. I think that um, uh, Mayor's uh, partner, who's played by Evan Peters, I think that actor's name is Evan mm. Peters. Um, we, we start. We only start to get to know him. I think at the beginning of episode four, end of episode three, um, and I think that's plenty of time to get to know him. But at the same time. Where do we go from here? Are they set? Are they setting up a love interest? And for those of you on the call who are further along than I am, please don't spoil it. But you know, are they setting up a love interest? There seems to be a a, a large enough um, 
age gap that I would start to feel um, the, you know, the overwhelming cringe factor that I got (laughs) from sharp objects there without any, you know, enough of an an entertainment aspect to keep me going. Um, But I am interested in seeing how it all resolves. Mm -hmm. And I I do think that, um, you know, the viewer at the very least is going to have enough to look at on the screen that, uh, you know, (laughs) even if there isn't resolve in this season, maybe you'll return for more next. So I just want to talk about this love object kind of thing, not in a spoilery way. But, um, you know, there's a lot being made, obviously, of Kate Winslet's appearance in this whole thing. I mean, she's I mean, the, the overarching idea is she's depressed and de- uh, particularly she's depressed in the way that uh, um, a star athlete gets depressed when they can't be a star athlete anymore and nothing seems to mean anything. And then other things start to go wrong. And so she's the, the, they've had her put on a lot of weight and she's vaping all the time and her hair is always kind of tied back in this kind of unattractive way most of the time unless she's going out on a date with Guy Pierce, and, and you know I don't know I have to say I had this weird memory of when I was a kid reading Mad Magazine and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf had just come out and the whole idea was that Elizabeth Taylor had been made to look really blousy and frowsy and just run down as Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and I remember Mad Magazine was doing their little parody of it and they showed a frame where they kind of drew the way Liz did look in that movie and they said look at her she looks so horrible we wouldn't want our mother to look like this our girlfriend maybe but not our mother Uh, and there's a way in which you know Kate Winslet I don't know like we're, we're supposed to think wow Wow, she's a mess. <laughs> she still looks like Kate Winslet, and all the guys want to go out with her. I mean, I have this thing. I mean, they they tried this also with Little Children, a movie that I adore. Hmm. I I love it, and she's in it, and they they keep trying to make her into like a plain person, and you're like, you can't make Kate Winslet into a plain person. She's this radiant actress. You know, it's like it's. I I feel like it's it's just like the way that she holds herself and the, like just her sheer talents are the sort of things where it's like I she's very good at playing people like normal people, but she's like not a normal person. No, I saw I, her, I ran of, into her at the Chelsea Diner one time, and she she's like that in real life too. I are yeah. So, part of the way that they try to amp that up is first episode she has a limp. She's <laughs> yes. like this is a very clear. You know, how can we uh, roughen her up a bit? Ah, we'll give her a limp and see what happens. <laughs> and so even though she doesn't have a limp for the rest of the series, you still sort of remember her with the limp. That's the tone that she's got. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we should quickly, just to make uh, Slattery angry, uh, we should play a little bit of Saturday Night Live's uh, parody of this. This is from the epic Elon Musk episode, which I was traumatized uh, about from last week's nose, but here's a B3 cat. You've seen dead teens in New York, Chicago, and Boston. But what about another city with very specific whites? Pennsylvania whites. Would you guys quit eating Wawa Hokies over the body, please? Sorry, Ross. From the makers of Mayor of Easttown and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia comes... No, is it my daughter? And when she's murdered... They murdered my daughter? I'm afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter had a baby daughter and they murdered her! Murder Dirter. This is where Joe Biden's from. Wow. All right, Slattery, get mad. <laughs> so, I mean, the first, I remember watching that, and the first thing I thought was like, I am definitely not taking like elitist humor from Elon Musk. <laughs> 
This is not a man who is in a position to like be punching up at anybody. No. <laughs> I was like, see you later, dude. But then like the the second part of it was that like I I think that the the idea that that a show would like do research and do its homework and know what it's talking about. Um the idea that you would make fun of that strikes me as totally counterproductive. It's like, would you rather we just dwell in stereotypes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they worked really hard on that, that so-called Delco accent. Uh, and I was gonna say, like, this is this is like the wrong move. Like, why would you criticize something that's like trying to sort of do the right thing that way and like represent people accurately and <laughs> you know all of that? It it is it's just it just seemed like it missed it missed the whole target by a mile. And um, yeah, it was. It was interesting to see Saturday Night Live flail in that way, and I felt bad for Kate McKinnon. I actually, I actually thought it was a little bit funny, and I was cringing for most of that whole, you know, Elon Musk, uh, the full episode, and it was making me just super nervous. But you know, I mean, it's sort of we can sort of round this conversation out a little bit. And before I, I do that or have Mercy do it, I do want to say that one of the thrills for me or treats for me in anything is Julianne Nicholson in almost anything. And here she plays this, I think she must have been the center on the basketball team or something. And so far, all they're given her to do is like BFF stuff with Kate Winslet. Although I feel like looking at the little coming attractions, that's going to break it all. And she's just an actor I really, really enjoy. I mean, I enjoy the way she looks. I enjoy the way she plays stuff. I'm really looking forward to her at least, you know, taking a bite out of the scenery before this is over. But, but you know, uh, to your point, Mercy, about sharp objects, you know, this is a way in which, yeah, they're trying to evoke place. And I think part of your point at the beginning was, and they're evoking a place that, yeah, Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live is sort of right. This isn't a place we see that much. And that's good, right? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. I, and, you know, these sorts of, you know, art that invokes place, place pieces, if you will, um, are interesting in that they come with a built-in fan base, sort of, right? I mean, how many people watch Sneaky Pete because it was based in Bridgeport, right? Um, for this in particular, <laughs> there are pieces that work for me when it comes to that place and pieces that don't. I, I think that all of that is rooted for me in um, challenging stereotypes that I have about small towns, right? So. For some reason, maybe it's the lighting of the show, the actual tone and the color that they went with. For some reason, it doesn't matter what home we're in. I always replace that house in my memory with a trailer home, <laughs> right? Like there's something about that that I think the show does really well. It's that, you know, we when we think of small town places, we actually think of like rundown ramshackle homes. But no, Right. Like or or we think of beat up cars, but Kate Winslet's driving what seems to be, you know, a, a 2018 or newer um, uh, uh, SUV that's pretty souped up. And, I mean, she's a detective, so we get that her husband lives in a pretty uh, updated and she lives in a pretty updated home. And so every step of the way, it's sort of dismantling what we think about. Yeah, small I like some of the, the like, porches are nice. The porches in there. The I'm being told. I'm being told we need a break here, so we're going to wrap it up uh, here. I just do want to say in one more name, Gene Smart. Gene Smart's in everything these days. Gene Smart is having this incredible third career, and she's always very enjoyable, too. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm always happy to see her in just about anything. All right, let's take—yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. 
watching Kate Winslet and Gene Smart argue has been one. <laughs> oh, that's that's the best part yeah. of the show. They should have their own YouTube channel where they just do that. All right, we have to go. We're going to come back and make some recommendations. Here we come back, and it's time for me to thank Cat Pastor. Cat Pastor is the technical producer of this show, and lots of complicated clips and things like that that need to be played today. The news is almost always produced by Jonathan McPan, since that is the case today. So thanks to both of them. Uh, our guests today are Brian Slattery and Mercy Quay. We're going to make some recommendations for you as the weekend uh, starts up, stuff that you may choose to occupy yourself with or not. So, uh, Mercy, why don't you go first? Yeah, happy to. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend uh, just the music of Fat Astronaut. I, I've been jamming out to Fat Astronaut, um, a local New yes. Haven band down here. Um, in and you know they don't have any shows on the books right now, but you can always find their their music on um, iTunes or uh, Spotify or wherever you get your music. Um, so that's loosely related to space, Fat Astronaut. I will make a uh, closer to space recommendation for um, Star Trek's Lower Decks, which is a cartoon animated version of uh, Star Trek, and it dives into the lives of right. Well, we know everyone who's on the on the uh, bridge. We we don't know much of, about the folks who are keeping the ship running from the lower decks, and it is a great show if you need some content to binge. All right, we. I just want to say, Fat Astronaut is P H A T. Uh, fat astronaut. In case you're looking for it, you can't find it. That's where it is. And there's a new Andy Weir novel uh, dropping today, I think. So Mercy will be covered for her next appearance. We'll know what she's Absolutely. endorsing already. So uh, Brian Slattery, uh, what are you going to endorse today? Um, okay. So in the interest of what what Mercy had said about that, you you can use award shows to discover things that you may not have listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, the name the the name for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee that seems to have shown up a lot recently, and at the same time, I'm sort of surprised at how few people seem to listen to his music. Would be Gil Scott Heron, <laughs> and uh, he if you haven't ever listened to him, it's it's totally worth it. I mean, if only for I mean, first of all, the music is great, and then. Second of all, um, it's he's one of those artists whose art is going to seem incredibly contemporary. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about how uh, when he was when he was performing, uh, he was considered quite dangerous. And that's that's a uh, that's that's a good point to reflect on as you then hear it and think, well, he's pretty much just telling the truth. <laughs> so Gil Scott Heron. I, I second that endorsement and just say, also, I mean, obviously, there's some pretty devastating political stuff th- that he does. Um, in fact, I was sort of surprised uh, with the series For All Mankind, which I'm sure Mercy also watched. I don't think they ever used Whitey on the Moon, uh, which like you know would have been perfect in about three or four places. Uh, yeah. uh, but I don't think they ever used it. But I mean, you know, Gil Scott Heron, some of his music is just fun, too. There's a song, I think it's called 17th Street, uh, yeah. and it's, it's just about his neighborhood and just how everybody likes to get down. And it's... It's, it's about as fun a jam as I can think of, really. It's really just terrific. And I, I think I can sort of, you know, um, throw a line from there to my endorsement, which is my endorsement is kind of uh, appallingly simple-minded. Uh, but uh, Stevie Wonder turned 71 yesterday. And just by chance, over the last couple of weeks, 
I've just been, and partly it's because, as some people know, the uh, woman in my life has been in the hospital for a really long time, and I visit her, and I just, you know, I've got Tidal, the streaming service on my phone, and I set up a Bluetooth speaker, and we just listen to music that we love, and, you know, um, and just lately, it's Stevie, you know, he's, the thing about Stevie Wonder as a songwriter is, his 50 best songs are like, they're all good, you know? They're, I mean, there are a lot of people who have 10, 15, 20 really good songs, but really, you could just sort of listen to 50 Stevie Wonder songs, and you probably won't have used up all the good ones at that point, you know? And they're just really interesting in lots of different ways. And uh, so I, I will recommend that, and then I put it up on social media. If you've never seen Esperanza Spalding covering Overjoyed, which is my current favorite Stevie Wonder song anyway, at the Obama White House... I, and I actually do think President Obama kind of had a harmless crush on Esperanza Spalding. I, not something I can prove, but I sort of believe it. But if you've never seen that, the video is up. It's easy to find. Um, and uh, it'll just, you know, bring the song alive to you in a whole different way. But just I'm just going to endorse, you know, spend some time, as we've been kind of suggesting for this whole show, spend some time with something musical. It does take some time to just sort of remind yourself about music. And a lot of people don't do it. And just like a deep dive into Stevie Wonder, man, you will not be sorry. Uh, and I am certainly not sorry that we had such wonderful panelists today. Mercy Quay uh, and Brian Slattery. Thanks also to Cat Pastor, Jonathan Big Pants. Thanks to you, too, for listening. And we will be back next week. Waterberry, Olderberry, Woodberry, hitting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.